0: Many of my colleagues, if not all of them, thought that I had probably lost my mind. (laughs) You know, why would I do this? Why would I leave a perfectly good career making a lot of money um, to do something else? But I really had no choice. I mean, I I had to do something else. I just didn't know what it was going to be. Hey, what are you doing? You're listening to the Make Something Where You Are podcast.
1: That's right. I'm your host, Jeff Mm Houghton. And today, I will be interviewing chocolatier Sean Askinosie. Uh It's a really great conversation. I kind of knew his story, but he there's this a depth to it that I didn't know. So Sean talks about losing his father at 14, which I found riveted, riveting. Um, and I talk about, it, I believe, in this podcast, but I lost my best friend when I was 18. And it, it, it affects you in a way in these significant ways for the, the rest of your life. So I love what he had to say about grief, and I love chocolate as much as the next guy, but probably less because I have horrible sinuses and I can't smell very well. So here's Sean Askenosi, but first, sponsors. The sponsors for the Sean Askenosi episode is Old Missouri Bank. It's always there to help you make something right here in Springfield. It's your locally owned community bank for futures made brighter, banking made better. Visit oldmissouribank.com for more information about how we can help you go forward from right here. It's also brought to you by the eFactory. The eFactory works with entrepreneurs, business leaders, startups, and creators to help make Springfield, Missouri the best place in America to start a business. So whether your company is still just a dream, you're in the thick of starting and growing your venture, or you're interested in meeting the people behind Springfield's amazing small businesses, the eFactory is where you want to be. When you're ready to make something, they are ready to help. All right. Sean Askenosi This one, yeah, it was really cool. Um, so he has this fascinating story. He spent most of his career as a defense attorney until one day he decided to drop it all and start a chocolate factory. That's right. That's real life. That's something real life. He was one of the early pioneers in the bean to bar movement, which is like, I don't know exactly. <laughs> I've said it to people a lot. You know, it's bean to bar. And then I guess it's the same beans. I don't really know. Okay. And so he's also led the way in paying the cocoa farmers fair wages. So he created something incredible from a relatively small storefront. His chocolate can be found in stores and coffee shops around the country. He's written a book about experience. and I love talking to him because he's got so much depth and thoughts on grief and healing and small business and stuff. So we chatted in the basement bar of Dapper Barbershop called the Hepburns, decorated like an early 20th century speakeasy. We were there in the afternoon before the Hepburn opened. So here's Sean Askinosie. As far as this idea of making something where you are, mm-hmm. um, and then in terms of like thinking of it as a podcast, you were the first person that came to mind because I liked the idea of, like I'm passionate about the idea of people doing something um, really awesome in an unexpected place because kind of my whole idea is that like we have this we believe this idea that you have to be in a big city or on a coast to do something awesome and if you're going to do if you're going to try something and you're not there it's probably going to be subpar or something mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i just vehemently disagree with that and you're the best example i know of doing that so t- Tell me how it started. I know you've told this story a million times. We're recording, yeah. Okay. Um, so tell me how how it started first, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, um, I was, as you know, I was practicing criminal defense law here for almost twenty years. My my law career was that long, and um, I'm from here, and went to school here. Went to you know all elementary, junior, and high school here, and but I moved away for a little while. Um, my wife is from Texas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So I did practice law for, there for a while with a big firm. And I wanted to come back home and practice law, um, solo practice, and mm-hmm. and, um, <clears throat> and so I did that. And I came back for a reason that a lot of people often come back. My mom was sick, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a big reason why people come back yeah. to Springfield, is yeah. because of their parents. Yeah. Maybe either to, just to be closer to them or to help out. Yeah, you know? and if, I
1: moved here for the sake of love like my, my girlfriend, my now wife,
0: mm-hmm.
1: my then girlfriend, now wife, um, and I met so many people who are like, yeah, I met a girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I got here. Yeah, exactly.
0: And so, so I, you know, brought Karen back here um, with me, and um, so the the time frame, you know, I just I was kind of done with with the law. I loved it until I didn't, mm-hmm. and I could feel it, you know, kind of physically that it was something that became a real challenge for me and and that's the kind of job you really can't phone in Mm -hmm. I mean you could you could if you're doing maybe cases that don't have quite the stakes of high high level felony cases where people you were were
1: doing big stuff and like I wasn't I think I got here 2003 I became I think I knew your family more through like kind of well improv little theater stuff yeah, Yeah, yeah and um and I didn't know how like you were you were well-known in that role, and you were taking on big consequential cases and
0: mm-hmm, stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that, <laughs> I always thought, so my understanding of you was, first was like, uh, oh yeah, that's Sean who I see at Galey's, and he's starting a chocolate thing. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but I think yeah. most other people in the community are like already, yeah. you, you, were, you were known.
0: That's funny. I knew you because of the... The dish at Gailey's that was named after yeah. you, Mr. <laughs> Jeff, and um, that's funny. That's funny. Well, it was through Lauren. Yeah, that's right. Because Lauren, yeah. we would go to Gailey's and then Lauren was the one who was in, in little theater and and really enjoyed um, skinny improvs. So, yeah, I mean, that's funny. Yeah. So you so you
1: you got taught. It seems like a that's a particular field you could very easily get burnt out on, just in terms of the weight of it.
0: Yeah, you could. And, and I kind of thought I didn't, I didn't see it coming. I mean, I actually didn't because it was what I wanted to do my whole life. I wanted to mm-hmm. do it. My dad died when I was young and, and, uh, he was a lawyer and I wanted to follow in his footsteps. And I spent my whole, you know, early years just pursuing that yeah. and thinking that that's what I'd do forever. And, um, yeah. Once it, it, it is easy to get burned out in that job, um, just like any other job. And I think that when that happens, you kind of need to listen and really for the sake of your clients. And, and mm-hmm. um, it's, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't really contribute to our system of justice if the people involved are not really fully engaged in their work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine not everyone gets out when they get to that point.
0: That's true, I mean there are a lot of um, the the rate of suicide among lawyers is very high um, hmm. and there's a lot of uh, burnout and I think that when I started the chocolate business, there was a little coffee shop I don't know if it's still there in the in the bottom floor of the courthouse, and it's for lawyers. It's a lawyers lounge type yeah. thing for during while you're waiting for a case to be called, and that's where people sort of you know commiserate about judges and just everything and yeah. and uh i remember many of my colleagues if not all of them thought that i had probably lost my mind <laughs> you know why would i do this why would i leave a perfectly good career making a lot of money yeah um, to do something else but i really had no choice i mean i i i had to do something else I just didn't know what it was going to be.
1: What is that? What do you mean? You had to.
0: Well, it's kind of like um, the metaphor that I was using just actually this week because I love flying. I mean, I'm not a pilot, but I dream about it all the time. And it was <laughs> it, it was it was as if I was in the cockpit of this jet, and I could read the instruments, and all of the instruments were saying, "You need to push the ejection button now." Yeah. And the plane kept flying as it would, and I couldn't find the right ejection button. That was the problem. In other words, I could see ways out of the plane, but I wasn't drawn to any of them. I didn't mm-hmm. feel pulled. It didn't feel like a calling. It just wasn't It wasn't engaging me in my spirit. And so that became a real challenge to stay in it and not push just any button to get out of the plane. And uh, that's what I wrote a book about, about being in that position. And the problem is is when you're in that, the stress becomes greater, not less, as you can't find the next thing to do. And so, yeah. you know, it's like the harder I tried to find something else, then the further away it became, and that was depressing, you know, and that, that's, it causes a lot of anxiety and, you know, just feeds <laughs> on it. So it was, it was tough, tough time.
1: How long, how long would you say this? Five <clears> years. Really?
0: Yeah, about five years. And at the beginning of it, I remember committing to prayer just a very simple prayer that went like this: "Dear God, please give me something else to do." And I said that a lot, and I, I sometimes said it many times a day, and it was becoming. I, I really thought that it wasn't going to happen.
1: So, so then, like taking you back to the, to the lawyers, to like you're in the in the coffee shop with mm-hmm. them, um, and you're telling them. Not only are you leaving. Do you know what you're going to do next?
0: Yeah, at that point, I mean, the um, when the idea came to me, I started developing some hobbies while, during this process, but when the idea came to me to make chocolate from scratch, I was already working with chocolate, just making desserts, you know, mm-hmm. not knowing where it came from, no idea, zero. But within a few months, well, actually within three months of the idea coming to me, I was in the Amazon, um, studying how farmers can influence yeah. the flavor. Uh, with what they do and so at that point I was <clears throat> learning how to make it in small batches and I knew for sure that I was going to sell my building at Walnut National that I was going to take on you know a partner Stacey Ballou, mm-hmm. and that she was going to help me wind down my case I knew that so there, yeah I knew I knew what I was kind of jumping off into because the because the unwind process took about a year yeah you know and to, and to buy my building on commercial and all that stuff
1: oh yeah but how do you cuz i imagine that there are cuz i've had to i've made like a similar like leap into the unknown before mm-hmm. but prior i felt like like so in 2011 i moved to la mm-hmm. and similarly i was just like um i just have to do this mm-hmm. like it didn't feel like so mm-hmm. much of a choice right um but i imagine lots of people feel that burned out feeling but also can't get past the stuck feeling Mm -hmm. how did how did you what did it take to
0: do that to get unstuck yeah Yeah. Okay. what it took is um, and again I write about this um, but what the the poet philosopher that we can um, bring in now I wish he was here and he could be interviewed by you but um, Khalil Gibran said that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And he says, the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy. And so what I started to do during this stuck period was I started to really examine the sorrow in my life. And up to that point and to now, my greatest sorrow was when my dad was diagnosed with cancer and helping take care of him. Mm-hmm. Thinking how, that he, how old were you? I was 12 when he was diagnosed and 14 when he died. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we didn't have hospice in Springfield. And so, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, would, I would help give him pain shots, you know, when mm-hmm. I was 13. My mom couldn't do it. And he was, as I said before, a lawyer. And um, there was this weird th- thing happening in Springfield at the time we were Episcopalian. My father was... Jewish. My mom was a Southern Baptist farm girl. And so they decided together to become Episcopalian. That makes complete sense. (laughs) Compromise. Yeah. And so they, but at that time there started, there was this beginning of a charismatic Episcopal church in Springfield where they all spoke in tongues. And when my dad got sick, they decided to leave our one Episcopal church and go to the charismatic Episcopal church. Mm -hmm. And um, then there was this prayer group from that church that would come over to our house, lay hands on my dad, speak in tongues, freaked me out. They would yell, And they would kind of, you know, claim his healing, so to speak. They would, um, it was, I don't know, it was quite just really um, uncomfortable for me because it seemed a little bit mean. And by that, what I'm talking about is the leader of the prayer group would say to me, don't talk with your dad about death because if you do, then Jesus won't heal him. It'll be a sign of doubt if you talk with him about death. And so when my dad would try to talk to me about it, I would you know, say, Dad, don't talk like that. We can't talk about that. You won't live. Yeah. And so I was with him when he died at home, and I thought he was going to live. And I, I was standing, I mean, next to his bed talking to him. The next thing I know, he's dead, and I'm begging God to not let him die out loud. You know, just please let him live. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the greatest moment of desperation in my life. Mm-hmm. And so fast forward 25 years, and I, I started – really, really looking at that and kind of having a conversation, so to speak, um, with myself about that time in my life and how it affected my whole life. And so then during this five-year period of stuck, I spent a lot of time, because I am to this day, you know, a type A driven, motivated person who believes that every problem can be solved you know just by hard work or planning or mm-hmm. something and it, you could you couldn't do the kind of law that i did and take the kind of complicated cases that everybody thought were losers and win
1: yeah. if
0: you didn't think that way you yeah, know, like right. sure we can solve this problem you know yeah. well i approached my next career move and with that same vigor and it didn't work. You know, I mean, I was even back then, I mean, I was thinking that Google would be the answer to all of my problems or that I would, you know, look at this franchise opportunity and buy that thing or start this business or start that. I mean, I looked at everything and it was this like this dashboard of opportunities, otherwise known as the paradox of choice, which paralyzes us, you know? (laughs) And so, so what I, what I, um, what I did And this was not, this is, I I didn't do it intentionally. I just, upon reflection, I see as I, I see how this helped me. So I, I took that sorrow and I started volunteering at Mercy um, in their palliative care unit, which means palliative care is essentially end of life care. Mm -hmm. It's like hospice in the hospital. And on Fridays for gosh, maybe three or four years, I went to the hospital, and they would give me a list of patients to go visit. Sometimes there would be five patients, sometimes there would be 20. And it would be a patient in oncology or cardiology or neurology, and they'd, they would all be in some state of dying. Mm-hmm. And most of them had no family or friends or visitors, and so they had asked for a volunteer. And I would go to their rooms and just, just talk to them, and sometimes I would read to them. And at the end of my visit, I would always ask them I would say, well, one of the things I do as a volunteer here is I pray for people. Would you like me to say a prayer for Mm you? Well, um, 99% of people in that situation will take a prayer. Mm -hmm. And I would ask them, and this was the key, I would say, what would you like me to pray pray for? Well, so pulling that thread back to the 14-year-old me, that's Mm -hmm. exactly the opposite of what happened to me so I gave it to them I didn't judge their prayer some would say would you pray that I live two weeks to my 65th wedding anniversary would you pray that I'm healed today would you pray that I die today Mm -hmm. I I prayed their prayer right back to them using their words I'd ask them if I could touch their arm or their shoulder or their hand and um, I prayed their prayer and then this is kind of the mystery of it all in those few moments, really measured in seconds, mm-hmm. I actually thought about someone besides me. Yeah. And um, that's a kind of a weird place to be for you know, a really big ego like myself. Um, and I would find myself, not every Friday, but many times walking from the front doors of the hospital out to the parking lot, and it was as if, it was as if my feet weren't on the ground. Mm-hmm. I was three or four feet above the ground. And, um, well, that feeling is joy. Yeah. And so what I mean by the, then that the way the Khalil Gibran statement of the greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked, that's exactly what happened to me. Yeah. And so during that time of volunteering, serving, not thinking about me for just, you know, a few seconds. Mm-hmm. There was a, a space created in me to contemplate my future. Yeah. That's where it happened. It did, I'm not saying that cho- the idea of chocolate happened while I was walking the halls of Mercy Hospital. I'm saying it was during that time of my life when yeah. it came to me. And that's, that's a paradox. It's a mystery. And um, so for people who are listening to your podcast who are stuck the sort of counterintuitive advice that I give people is don't get unstuck by searching Google more or looking yeah. on Facebook more or getting more Instagram likes or even really talking to your friends or even reading in a book, even my book <laughs> or a podcast. Yeah. What I say is if you're inspired by just a few sentences on any of those platforms, stop and go do the thing that you're inspired to do. You know just a little bit. And it's counterintuitive because when people are depressed, they don't want to it's they don't want to roll up their sleeves and serve someone who needs them because it hurts at first. It hurts. It's painful. Yeah. And you also are doing it thinking, oh, why am I doing this? This isn't helping. I need to be researching. I need to be, you know, networking. I need to go to an event and meet some people who are going to give me some great ideas. Yeah. It's it's all inside us. Yeah. It's we, we have it.
1: And when you um my lifelong best friend passed away when I was 18. Okay. And so, yeah. so I, I have some understanding. Yes you do. And um, Yes you do. Um and it there there is and you're using a lot of similar verbiage to like how I think about it too, that like um the best things that have Happened to me in my life are right next to my tragedies. Yep, and it's in a paradoxical way that you can't explain,
0: Mm-mm.
1: you can't uh, logically explain,
0: Mm-mm.
1: and anything else in my life that has been a tragedy, there is like a. Um, it's like I don't know, I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but it does it it opens you up. Yes. And. But it but here's what it does. I'm inarticulate on it.
0: No, it you're you're you you're you're hitting the nail on the head. What it what when your best friend died <clears throat> it broke your heart.
1: That's mm. what
0: it did. And so when you say it opens you up, it opens your heart up. Mm. And it and what we want to do in this world and for for understandable reasons, we want to fix that. You know, we want to fix the broken yeah. heart. Well, I'm saying that's that is not I don't think that's productive I don't think that leads to our joy I don't think it leads to our ability to have compassion and kindness for other people and so I say you know take the broken heart that you have don't try to fix it and find out how you can how you can express the compassion that you have in your life that you have learned from practicing it with yourself and how other people treated mm-hmm. you during that time when your heart was broken and yeah. is still broken. Yeah. Now, to this day, all yeah. these years later, yeah. it absolutely is. Yeah. And it's part of who you are.
1: Yeah. And there is I, I love the wisdom of what you're saying of um uh, of the the paradox of taking your focus off yourself and fixing. Mm-hmm. And how, (laughs) with a sincere heart, doing something for someone else Mm -hmm. opens you up similarly.
0: Right. Gandhi said it. If you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. And he's not the first person to say. Jesus said something similar. And so, yeah, it's—and when people are listening to this, they're like, okay, I know what to do. Step one, go serve somebody. Step two, find my future. You know? (laughs) But we—and also, people have this sense of guilt. Like, oh, I'm doing it because the ends are going to justify the means— and it doesn't work when, yeah. you, when you do that. Yeah. That's why I ask people, so like for you, you know, I would say, well, who needs you? Who do you know that needs you? What can you do to serve them? And, and this is the real, the real, the sort of depth of it all, is can you identify someone who needs you that somehow is related to what broke your heart in the first place? Huh. And if you can do that, it essentially yeah. turbocharges your soul. That's yeah. what it does. Yeah, I, I can say, look, I mean, we, we and we we may or may not talk about this, but I mean, you know, I I co-founded Lost and Found Grief Center part mm. of it, sometime during this time with with Karen Scott here in Springfield. <clears throat> I we're feeding a thousand kids a day. I profit share with farmers. I take kids to Tanzania. I, but I'm here to say that I've never been more just uplifted in my life than those days at the hospital when i just you know have you ever been at the right place at the right time i mean in a way that you're like wow i cannot believe this is happening it's yeah. totally the right place right time yeah that's that feeling yeah that's what we're about you know that's that's what we were made to feel that way
1: yeah and it sounds like you're saying there's some um uh, healing that goes on if you if you take that service and put it towards exactly the place where you have yes. some hurts. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I believe that. I, I believe it and it's happened with me and still happening, you know. I still am ready for it to happen.
1: Yeah. So you, um, I love the, the depth of that genesis that it's not, not just like, yeah, I got tired of my job and yeah. so I started something. <laughs> yeah. But that there is like this, process this internal process you have to go through.
0: There is, and there's also part of the internal process might at the end of it say you might find yourself saying, I'm not gonna leave my job. I'm gonna stay right where I am. I don't need yeah. to move to the next thing. I'm 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 gonna find my place right here where I am.
1: But it's sitting with your sitting with yourself instead of taking that like agitation and yeah. trying to fix it. Yeah. I I still struggle with
0: it. I mean, I still, I find myself agitated over, you know, my, my, I'm not agitated maybe, but yes, sort of restless, you know, and, and discontent. Yeah. And, and so I just, I, but what I, what I've kind of started to do as I get older is to, I'm, I'm aware of it quicker than Mm -hmm. I used to be. (laughs) So that's, you know, that helps me (laughs) a little bit, you know, kind of, kind of re kind of resets the clock, so to speak for me.
1: Okay, so you go through, you go through all this, and you're still continually going through, but you find yourself in the Amazon.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How then does? At what point in the process have you decided what you're going to start a chocolate company?
0: Well, when I I went to the Amazon thinking that this is going to be it. Mm-hmm. You know, I I did I did that, and then that being there, I'd never been in the. I'd, well, I'd never been in primary forest, untouched. You know, just this rainforest that was a real kind of creation experience for me. It was it was totally bigger than me, and I didn't Ooh. know where I was. And it was it was a very humbling experience to just be a tiny speck in the rainforest. And so, it being there really solidified it, affirmed my suspicion that I would start this chocolate business. And yeah. uh, so, when I came back. From, from that, um, I really just pushed the accelerator down on trying to get this done as quickly as I could.
1: How do you know there's being motivated, and then how do you know, have any idea what steps are the proper steps to take?
0: I didn't know, and that was, um, that was you know, that's, that's a good question because I was young enough to be foolish enough to think that I could do it <clears throat> and mm-hmm. not knowing I'm not mechanical, I can't fix anything. I, di- I took zero accounting and finance in college. <laughs> um, I, 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 ha- I had no science classes. I took forestry. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't even think I ever went. I may have gone for the <clears throat> midterm and final. And um, so I didn't, I just had this, I had an, a tremendous amount of um, curiosity and passion for mm-hmm. it and for the process and so I just started learning. And there wasn't, nobody was doing this in the United States. There were about, there were three of us around the country that were starting bean to bar chocolate factories about the same time. Mm-hmm. Now there's 200. I mean, there's the barrier. The, oh, really? The, yeah. The, well, the barrier to entry in this business now is basically zero. I mean, uh, when I did it, nobody knew how to do it. I had yeah. to go to South America to find a, comp- or a little factory that would let me, you know, kind of stay there for a while and figure out what they were doing yeah. and have them teach me a little bit. And then I just had to learn. By doing, and then I had to make this. You know, I think a lot of people make things in their homes, like I'm thinking of baking. You know, they bake cookies, mm-hmm. and their friends say, "Oh, these cookies are amazing! You should really start a cookie business." Well, uh, call me because we'll talk about that. There's what you, or at least me, as a non-business person, non-math person, non-science person, is. I. Nobody told me that the the the, the difference in scale between Making you know a pound of chocolate in your house yeah. versus making 250 pounds of it you know in a little <laughs> factory, I, I mean it's, it's not it's not even close to being the same. And so I really I'm, I I also had some money. I mean I'd saved we had you know our savings, and which I put the whole thing in the factory and um. So I had some money to burn mm-hmm. on learning, by mistake you know, and so I yeah. could do that. And thankfully you know and. And it took several months. It took, you know, once I bought the building on Commercial Street, I had hired some people. I had equipment in, had the cocoa beans, and I was stuck for four months trying to figure out how to temper chocolate. And <laughs> I couldn't do it. I thought, this is it. You know, I mean, this whole thing is going to fold and I'll go back to, you know, representing, you know, drug yeah. dealers or whatever. And um,
1: Well, and I always think this is interesting. People tell a story when they're looking back, like... It's, it's neater now because, you know, yeah, that was, good, that was four months. But like month two, you mm-hmm. don't know if, how long this I lasts know. or what the outcome is yeah. going to be. So I can't imagine going there every day and just being yeah. like, how do I?
0: It's the only time the business brought me to tears. I mean, yeah. I remember being so tired and exhausted and stressed, um, thinking like you just said, yeah, I had no idea how long it would last. And ultimately it was solved the way many Business problems are solved, which was through my checkbook, uh, buying another piece of equipment that I didn't know I needed yeah. from, from Germany, a very expensive, you know, about $40,000. And that solved my problems. All, you know, <laughs> you can...
1: Oh, were you interested in some mid-show sponsors? Good, because I'm interested in telling you about them. The 1906 Gents. Springfield's own custom-designed shop, offering custom furniture and build-outs for your home or office, and more. The 1906 Gents will work with you to create one-of-a-kind unique quality wood pieces that will stand for generations. The 1906 Gents offers a wide range of woodworking and design services in addition to their own line of furniture and home decor. The 1906 Gents, we build the things you make memories around. Also, it's brought to you by the Coffee Ethic. I have spent... Hours and hours and hours at that place. And I still keep going back. The Coffee Ethic has always lived by the simple principle of cup, people, earth. Dedicated to the art and science of brewing, The Coffee Ethic simply knows how to create a great cup of coffee. And they're now offering a subscription service. You can get their coffee shop coffee delivered right to your door each month. Learn more at thecoffeeethic.com and type in the promo code something at checkout for 15% off a delicious coffee subscription. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Sean Eskenazi. So for four months, you're you're tinkering. Yeah, and then is there a point where you're like, "All right, I've
0: got it." Um, well, there was a point right before that. I remember wishing that there was a sinkhole on Commercial Street under my building, <laughs> and it would just all fall in Please. when no one was there. Swallow me. <laughs> yeah, and and um, and, but then there was a point. I remember. Um, we went to this trade show in Nashville. We drove there to see this piece of German equipment in operation, mm-hmm. and I remember I I actually bought it at the trade show. Went and rented a U-Haul trailer in Nashville and drove it back. Here, <laughs> you know, and then then later, six months, a year later, the German company substituted it out for a new one. Yeah, but I remember plugging it in and starting it up, and I remember yeah at that time. And, and realizing in the summer of 2007, you know, that we can do it. You know, we've, we've got it. And I also learned over the years that this idea of, of of production, you know, of manufacturing with a really complicated process, which chocolate is a pretty complicated process, I did learn to not take for granted that once I solve a problem that it's like whack-a-mole. I mean, I know that there's another problem somewhere that's going to rise up and become a (laughs) challenge because it happens all the time. And here we are, 11 years later, still happening.
1: And I imagine having the expectation changes your attitude towards it when it happens.
0: Yeah, it does. It doesn't... I mean, just like right now, I'm away from the factory, and right before I left, my production manager came over and he said, you know, everything's going really smoothly today. Things are going great. Probably by the time I get back there, (laughs) there will be something broken... (laughs) something yeah. wrong, you know, and it's just kind of part of it. But it's actually, it's also part of the fun of it, too.
1: Yeah, because you're kind of problem-solving. Right. And it wasn't that, I think from talking to you before, it wasn't that um, big piece of equipment from Germany, wasn't it really old? That one
0: was, the, 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 the one, these are two different ones. In fact, mm-hmm. the, one, the one that's old from Germany, yeah, it's a 6,000-pound granite melanger. Um, that was the first piece of equipment I bought. So that wasn't the one from Germany. The one, the other one from Germany, is not a grinder like that granite thing. This one is a tempering machine from Germany. Okay. So it's at the end of the process. The granite thing I bought first from Germany is at the beginning of the process, crushing okay. the beans, mixing in sugar, um, and but the tempering machine is at the very end of the process. And what we found it, we found is that if we were off by a tenth of a degree in the temperature of the chocolate, we'd lose the whole batch. Wow. And we'd have to start all over again. And you can melt it out, and it's fine. Yeah. But if you get it wrong, and the part of the reason for that is because we don't use emulsifiers to sort of cheat the process. If yeah. you use another ingredient, uh, like lecithin, mm-hmm. you can cheat that sort of—you can expand the tolerances of the temperature. Okay. But we didn't want to put another ingredient. We wanted to make our own— cocoa butter, which we do to this day, and we wanted to just add sugar and cocoa beans and make it as pure as possible.
1: So uh, so I kind of, having known you for a while, and the company for a while, kind of take for granted the, um, oh yeah, it's Escalante chocolate, they do be in bar. But what does that mean exactly, and how is that different than what was done before?
0: the The, the different, The main difference is that Um, and this would be true for even the big companies like Hershey um, Nestle most of most of them not all but most of them will have another company process um, their cocoa beans well even source their cocoa beans buy Mm -hmm. their cocoa beans and then begin the first stages of processing which would be roasting and grinding okay and so what we've done and some other companies is we sort of bring those processes together and have control end-to-end over sourcing the beans, buying the beans, importing them, which is very unusual. We may be the only chocolate company that I know of in the U.S. There might be others who are actually also the importers of record. Okay. And so, like, we, you know, I'll I'll, I'll literally, you know, just a few weeks ago I was in the Amazon, and I was there looking at beans, and I'll see them in Springfield later this year. Yeah. In my... To, you know in my warehouse <laughs> on commercial street yeah, and and that's very unusual so the bean to bar process for us is uh, for us and what we really take pride in is working with the farmers and sourcing the beans and paying them directly profit sharing with them and then we, we process them by roasting them and then grinding the beans mixing it with sugar and then whatever else we're going to put in it and then and then molding the bars and shipping them from Springfield we don't have a distributor in the United States, so it's not like we ship it to some big company in Denver and yeah. they sell it. We, we sell to almost 1,000 stores around the United States, all direct. And then we sell online. Of course, that's our big, our big business is online.
1: Yeah. And you do that all from, from your building yeah.
0: there? Yeah, all from a 4,000-square-foot little factory in, on <laughs> Commercial Street. So with, only, with only 16 full-time people. Wow.
1: So, um, so not only did you decide, I'm going to start a chocolate factory, you also decided, I'm going to do it the hardest way possible. Yes,
0: my wife would say, if she were here, that if you told me to leave this location and go to the coffee ethic, which is only you know steps away... I would pick the most challenging path to get there. <laughs> I would like go down South Street and go over to Maria's and then I'd come back and take, take my form. shoes off. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Stop and talk to somebody. Um, so, yeah, I did pick the most difficult.
1: And then on top of that, the the profit sharing side of it increases the difficulty mm-hmm. <laughs> even further but explain what explain that side of it.
0: That's open book management. I've been doing open books since when I was practicing law, so I, I knew what that meant and knew how great it could be. And what I wanted to do was take that concept upstream to the supplier, in our case the farmer, and mm-hmm. apply that principle with them. And so what it meant was is that we we, at the end of each selling cycle, so when I go in a few weeks to Tanzania with our high school kids, I will bring um, our financial statement translated into Swahili. Okay. And they, they also that we, every year we go over our revenues for the whole company expenses, revenues for chocolate products sold with their beans expenses. And -hmm. then we calculate the profit share, show them how we do it. And then we give them Tanzanian shillings. Yeah. That's how it works. But the, the step that we took last year is, let's see, uh, in, in August of last year, we published on our website, something called a transparency report. And that was a three-year project by which we put together a spreadsheet of every single bean purchase that we've made since 2006 showing who we paid, how much we paid the farmers, how much shipping was, how much profit share we gave them, mm-hmm. and when it was, and what all of those compared to the world market price, the fair trade price, and the farm yeah. gate price. Yeah. And we have evidence to support every single cell in the spreadsheet, and then um, Dr. Kelly Still from Drury had her auditing class make that a class project to audit that spreadsheet. Okay. And then they'll do that again this fall. Yeah. So we—that's wow. a big—it's a big project, but it was something we wanted to do for our customers to be able to just take it to another level.
1: And tell me if this—tell me if this is true or I've made this up, but it seems like it's an. Uh, it's an industry working with farmers in more developing nations that often doesn't treat those farmers well. Is that right? Or is That's it? right,
0: no, that's right. And um, it's, there are about six million cocoa farmers in the world. And I would say, and just using very rough general estimates, about half of them are in West Africa, Ghana and Ivory Coast. Mm-hmm. We don't buy beans in West Africa, we buy them in Tanzania, which is on the east side of the continent. Um, Tanzania, Philippines, Ecuador, and the Amazon, and the Amazon region is in the southern border of Ecuador and Peru. But, so we don't buy them. But let's talk about those 3 million cocoa farmers 70% of the world's supply of cocoa, of all of the world's supply, comes from there. Hmm. Just those two places, Ghana and Ivory Coast. And I can prove this, and I do write about it in my book that those farmers, and let's say Mondelez, which is, you know, Kraft, uh, Mondelez, Hershey, Mars, Nestle, the big companies control the price of cocoa beans. Mm-hmm. So let's make a footnote here for just a minute and think about this. The price of cocoa, when adjusted for inflation over the last 30 years, has remained unchanged. It hasn't gone up. Hmm. Well, how could that be? Well, there are eight companies that buy 60% of all of the market, so you can figure it out. Yeah. And so then now let's go back to the 3 million farmers. I can prove that those farmers are making per capita, depending on the world market price of cocoa, like earlier in this year, they were making about $1. ten a day. Okay. Which is well below the United Nations definition of extreme poverty. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is, is that, and I'm not judging anyone for this, but if you go to the convenience store, you're paying for your gas, There's a thing of chocolate there, and you buy a big bar of chocolate for seventy-five cents, and you're like, "Hey, Mm -hmm. cool, that's a good deal." Well, and me included, you know, we're buying that on the backs of cocoa farmers who are making a dollar a day. Yeah, that's not a good deal. And when people say, "Well, Sean, you're charging ten dollars for your chocolate bar," I mean, you're you're, you must have a jet plane or something. No, but it's a good value. It's a much better value at ten dollars. The way we do business, and other colleagues of mine. Than it is to buy one of those in a convenience store, on the backs of farmers who huh. are really, really poor.
1: So, um, so do you? <clears throat> I imagine you. You. Uh, the ringing is distracting me. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, so I imagine that you, you always want to be growing, but it seems like there are. Things to watch out for if you grow too much or temptations, or yeah, like, yeah. or do you want to stay small? I imagine, I imagine you'd always stay craft in some sense, but mm-hmm. do you do you want to stay where you're at, or do you want to grow?
0: I want to stay where I am, and um, great question. And I, I, I know I keep saying this, but there's a book, there's a chapter in the book entitled Reverse Scale, uh-huh. and we write about that. My daughter came up with this phrase, which is. One of our vocations is not necessarily getting bigger, but getting better at staying small. Mm -hmm. The culture drives us to believe that the health of our economy and our businesses and everything is consumption, so it's GDP. We think that we must grow and we must consume in order to be healthy. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to do is challenge that philosophy, and I ask people to consider the question, how much is enough? Mm-hmm. I don't even necessarily think people need to have the answer. I just want people to ask the question, how yeah. much is enough? What is sufficient for my family, for me, for my business? Incorporating other people's you know, thoughts into it. And when we, when we can at least stop the train from moving down the consumption track, um, thinking that that's the, all, the end all to health, then we can at least ask how much is enough and and govern some of our strategic planning based on that. How much is enough? So to your question, do I want to grow, we we do want to grow a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it's my um, belief that as an entrepreneur – I have to practice this notion of reverse scale, and by re- reverse scale, what you know what scale means. I mean, mm. everybody asks the entrepreneurs, um, "Hey, will your business, will this business scale?" Investors and bankers want to know wh- how quickly can you scale this, how many locations can you get, yeah. how quickly can you can you uh, deploy this, and uh, chambers of commerce want to know because. It means more jobs, yeah. the bigger you can scale. Your family wants to know because they think if you scale, you're rich. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is turn that scale pyramid upside down. And many people often stop executing their idea because someone tells them that it's too small and therefore not valuable. Yeah. And I'm saying, wait, will this thing that you're thinking about doing, just will it help just one person? Or what if it doesn't help anybody but you? What if it yeah. just transforms you? Yeah. Well, I say it's valuable, and then I say this: take that thing that you know creates that that idea that that creates that value, and use it as a tether, sort of like these things, these ideas that we've been talking about. Um, and I say that the tether is the you're being you're attached to the thing that drew you to the business or your job in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because if all we're thinking about is scale and growth, what's gonna happen is eventually you will become distanced from others. Mm-hmm. So reverse scale could also be called human scale. Yeah. And what happens, not just entrepreneurs, but anyone who's growing and they're ostensibly successful in their life and in their business, they there's a they can, there's a risk of getting lost. Yeah. But if we can maintain a discipline or a practice of reverse scale, then we're going to be tethered to the thing that drew us in the first place. And so I, for me and my company, it requires in some ways a greater energy to not grow fast yeah. than to, if you can imagine, again, a flying. It takes a lot of energy and effort to hover a helicopter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Way more energy than it would just to fly it mm-hmm. over a spot. And while we're not just, you know, we do have some, you know, single-digit sales growth, not double-digit anymore, you know, single-digit, we turn away business. Yeah. Why? Because it's more important for me to have a peaceful workflow to do what I can to minimize chaos at the factory, even in the fourth quarter, which is crazy for us. But it's more important for me for there to be a peaceful workflow Than to just gobble up the next business thing that comes along.
1: That's fascinating, and you're touching on again just kind of the phrase I say to myself a lot is just kind of the um, that uh, truth is paradox that like that it seems like you really I think it a lot, and I have a hard time living in it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So like um, knowing that like actually if I fail. I'm gonna come out better for that. Mm-hmm. But yet, I just fearfully mm-hmm. <laughs> try to avoid it as much as possible. Yeah, But it sounds like you're able to kind of live in that sum where you're just like, I, I believe this paradox. Mm-hmm. How are you able to, <laughs> I guess part of my question is, I am just consumed with doubt all the time. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> How do you wade through that in what you do? Whether uh, it's from star- yeah. when you're starting out or to this day?
0: The way I do it is, um, and I'm not, I am, I am, um, I, my faith is aspirational. And so that's the way I do it. I do it with a faith practice. So the center point of all of these things that we've been talking about, every single thing that we've talked about since the moment you pushed record, the center of it all is my faith. It is my belief in God and Um, So I try to incorporate a practice, a daily practice, and then other practices throughout the year in order to um, continually be pointed back to my faith, especially in times of doubt. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of doubt, too. I'm right with you. But I—so it's—some would say, well, that's a ritual. I don't want to—well, okay, okay. It is. There's some there is some ritual to it, but I find solace in it. You know, I find mm-hmm. comfort in it. And I find and, and it's meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And um and I'm not perfect at it. That's why I said it's aspirational, you know. I'm I'm I I recognize it. But I also part of this is and this is gonna sound really weird, but I there are, believe me, and you know this as an entrepreneur, There, you, you do something and you're like, oh, man, that is really cool. Gosh, I am flying high now. I get to go do this thing. I love it. Mm-hmm. And then in the next minute or the next day, something happens and you're like, oh, crap, I cannot believe this is happening. Why is this happening? <laughs> what have I done? Why is this, I'm going to fail? Yes. And so, I mean, there's a part of me that i I want that. Uh, in other words, there's a part of me that doesn't want a Gulfstream Five, yeah. you know, because the reason is I now believe in my faith. It's become such a part of my life in the last 20 years that I like being, I like being nestled under the wing of God mm-hmm. and the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's kind of a safe harbor for me. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I have a, not a fear, but I have a suspicion that if, I'm just going to use the example, I, if I did have a Gulfstream 5, nothing wrong with that. I mean, and there are many people who haven't been good for them. I don't but know if, any of those but, but, if I did, but if I did, then I might think how cool I am. And I might not seek the safe harbor under mm-hmm. that wing, where I like to be. I like to return to that. And do I? I'm not saying I, I like failure and I like fear and I like doubt. What I'm saying is that I it, that the practice is now so ingrained in me that, in some kind of weird way, that de- that dependence mm-hmm. is a comfort to me.
1: Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you this, and you can you can you can say buzz off. But uh, so you, when you're when you're when you're starting out, when you're <laughs> you, you drop your career and start this, and uh, I don't know how long before you felt like you were on your feet, but like certain amount longer than you're hoping for, I imagine if it's if you're like anyone else, everyone else. Um, was that hard on your marriage?
0: Yes, and I remember very distinctly um, you know, trying to explain to Karen the kind of um, and she could see, you know, the depression and anxiety that I was mm. going through. And she wanted good for me, of course. Um, but I remember her saying that if I do this business that it will be the greatest challenge that our marriage has ever faced. Mm-hmm. And, and she was really serious about it, and I can picture that moment. You know, this is probably 13 years ago, yeah, 14 years ago, and um, um, she was right. Yeah. I mean, she was right, and in the first years of the business, it was a tremendous challenge to our marriage, and not just... For financial reasons, because I made a lot less money as a chocolate maker than as a lawyer, a whole mm-hmm. lot less. And not just that, um, but for just it was a f- her fear, you know, that it wouldn't work out, or yeah, that she and it's not it wasn't a materialistic thing. It was just a fear, just a generalized fear that she had. And you know, when I look back on that, I you know I think, and a lot of entrepreneurs, I think are Um, will relate to what I'm going to say, which is there was a degree of selfishness on my part. You know, Mm -hmm. I didn't really, I heard what she said. I didn't really give it much thought. Yeah. I didn't. I mean, and that's not very considerate. Yeah. I didn't have like a big, okay, well, let's go away for a weekend and have a retreat about this and talk about it. It was really, I thought about it for a matter of a minute. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, I didn't want to consider it because like we were saying before like when you went to Los Angeles I had to do it there right. was no I I I had right. to do it right I had to do it yeah and 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 when you said I mean now it's much better I mean and she's you know we just celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary this week and and um and you know it's still not perfect I mean no no marriage is but yeah. but she's I mean a huge you know supporter of me in the business and helps us strategically with lots of things that we do at the Chocolate Factory and really takes a lot of pride in what we do and how we are and how we treat mm-hmm. farmers and stuff like that and treat, you know, students and kids. And so it's, it's – but, but um, I would say when you said, you know, how long does it take to get on your feet? I mean, that's what I'm saying. That relates to the previous question. I'm not on my feet. Yeah. I'm, I'm not on my feet now, and it's been almost 12 years yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still there are still weeks where I'm gonna be like, uh are we gonna enough money to make payroll? Yeah. We're feeding a thousand kids a day. We we just surpassed a million meals that we've supplied for kids in Tanzania and the Philippines that we started the nutrition programs. We funded it, we founded it and and um founded, we found it. Whatever. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and uh but um and we've profit-shared so much with farmers, you know, over the years. But there are times when, when I'm thinking, because I've become really adept at cash flow management, mm-hmm. and, and uh, John Taylor, my COO, who's amazing, is a, just, uh, um, and we can forecast cash flow. We don't have a big line of credit. Mm-hmm. And there are weeks, even now, where I'm gonna, where, but I don't worry about it. I don't, it brings me zero fear. I have yeah. zero fear, I know it's gonna work out, but there are weeks when I'm like, um, <laughs> what? Well, and those, what, what ends up happening is like a couple of weeks ago, our air conditioning system went out <clears throat> in our offices, which are two or three doors down from the factory. Well, I I kept saying, well, surely there's something we can do. Can we fix them? Nope. $10,000. Write a check for $10,000 in the worst time of the year for us. Summer yeah. is worse for us because yeah. not as many people are buying chocolate and yeah. heat and Oh, so gosh. I was like, oh crap, I've got to write a check for ten thousand dollars. <laughs> but it is cool in our factory right now. I mean well, good, in the offices, good. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what
1: do you uh so personally I'm interested in this. So like so for as far as like my journey and what I'm doing, like um I I c I don't wanna go <laughs> I don't wanna summarize the whole thing, but you know, like uh for a long time it was just me doing my show and then we we get on T V and I, I have people come on board that that do so much more than I could do. And then realizing, okay, I'm not just kind of a a young business anymore. But to get to the the next plateau, I need more help in different ways. Or I I'm just I've run up against a wall of like I know what's kinda of needed for growth, but I don't have like the money necessarily to be like yeah and then I'll hire this and this and this you know what I mean mm-hmm. How, what have you done when you have run up to to those places
0: the thing that we have done and we are doing when we hit those places and we we are and we have is we sort of kind of look at the problem holistically and the way we do things and I'm sure you have kind of a, a division like we have production, and we have sales. I mean, mm-hmm. we make chocolate, we sell chocolate. Yeah. That's what we do. We make and sell chocolate. And you have something you could say probably about yours. We, mm-hmm. we do this, and we do that. Mm-hmm. Well, the this and the that, what we try to do is we bring in people from kind of both sides of that equation, and we talk this through, and we come up with innovative ways to um, invest what we do have, we don't have much, Mm -hmm. but how can we sort of chip away at this opportunity Mm -hmm. um, and invest a little bit in it? You know, we're, we're, we have the creative thought, so we're not lacking in the creative thought. We just don't have the capital or the time. Yeah. And it becomes this problem. And so what we, what we try to do is just chip away at it. You know, we chip away at this And the other thing is, you know, we have a long-term vision. And so we feel we're not disheartened by, um, and then we can look back and say, wow, look what we did with very little over just the last two years. Yeah. Knowing, well, you know, if somebody, you know, wrote us a million-dollar check to go spend on X, Y, Z, well, it would make it so much easier. Yeah. You know, it would just be so much easier. Um, But you know what? The other thing, too, is, and this is a sick entrepreneur talking, but. It, like we said before, it is kind of fun to have the challenge of looking at this problem yeah. of knowing that you could do all these other things if you just had more money. But it is kind of fun to say, gosh, we I don't know that we're going to be able to do this, yeah. but to come up with a way to do some version of that. Yeah, but yeah. still be proud of the quality that you've produced.
1: Yeah. it is. There is like a... Um... In my anxiety of trying to pull things off, there is a bit of sweetness to it where I'm like, but I still, I get pulled to it because you Mm -hmm. could just stop at any time. I'm like, I still like the challenge. Right, (laughs) right. And
0: see, and that's, and when that stops happening is when we need to let somebody else do it or or we need to step back for a minute, you know, and kind of reset and see what we, you know, what do we need to do to kind of reboot um, or do something else and... But that, 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 it, then, then you end up going through the same process that you went through to found the business in the first place, which I think is yeah. healthy. I think it's healthy.
1: Oh, so you have to kind of reapproach again?
0: Yeah, reapproach. And to say, you know, because one of the things, um, and I wrote a little blog post about this, the, the monks, um, Benedictine monks around the world, Um, When they become a monk, they take a vow of stability, Um, among other things, you know, a vow of poverty. And Mm -hmm. they take a vow of stability. And that means that they are making a promise to this community of monks that they're not going to leave. And it's a solemn promise. Yeah. And in this culture that we're in now, it's so easy to leave marriages, leave friends, leave businesses, leave cities, leave all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's easy to do. And so I think there's a real um maybe forgotten virtue of stability. Yeah. And I'm and of course you'd say, "Well, you didn't, you know, you left." But <laughs> I was there for 20 years, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And so what I'm saying, so as you begin to sort of you're in this business, you've done it, you've had some success, and then you start hitting a wall, um then it's time to kind of step back and say, "Okay, you know, do I need to recommit myself to the stability that I promised this thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and how can I, how can I gain, you know, like my grandparents were farmers in Southwest Missouri and they lived on the same farm over 60 years. And if I would have talked to my grandpa and said, you know, I don't want to do this lawyer thing anymore. He would have been like, what, what do you, what do you mean? I I, I mean, well, and I would say, well, grandpa, did you ever not want to be a farmer and just do something else and he wouldn't have understood. Right. He wouldn't have. But now we can do it and we're so attracted by the shiny objects in our peripheral yeah. vision and it's like, well, wait a minute. And so I think in this sort of rebooting process and reapproach, then I think that we can say to ourselves, do I stay and what mm. do I do to stay and remain committed and to this stability that I promised the thing or do I need to leave? Yeah. Do I need to leave? And and that's a worthy process, I think.
1: Well, just the process of, like, sitting with yourself and being honest with yourself and examining it. Right. Yeah. So if, if, um, if there's people listening to this that um, are starting out and it feels daunting, like, for me, in my experience, when I moved to L.A. to go pursue acting and stuff, Hollywood just seemed like this unknowable mountain and so for me part of the process was part of what I needed to do was go through the process of just kind of approaching it <laughs> sure um, what encouragement do you give people that are, that are like starting out or are mm-hmm. tempted to th- try or
0: yeah I say to them go read Joseph's Cam- Joseph Campbell what you just described about approaching the mountain mm-hmm. is otherwise known as the hero's journey
1: Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah,
0: every you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, The Wizard of Oz, every great classic story told is the hero's journey. Yeah, and so when you approach the mountain, the dragon, the challenge, Uh the war, the whatever, I mean, that's all. That's that is you. Please, if you your listeners can just take comfort and solace in the fact that you are among a group of a lot of people who have, who are on the hero's journey with you right now. And they're at all different stages. You know, some of them have, they're thinking about what is their hero's journey. Some are at the mountain, some are leaving the mountain and they're coming back home, back to the village to tell the story. Mm -hmm. That's what you did. Mm -hmm. And so I say, you know, just read any classic and take a deep breath and you'll, you'll feel much better or go watch star Wars.
1: There's this, uh, I'm, I'm horrible at movie quotes, but one thing I, I think about a lot, which is a lot of what you're saying, is um, in Lord of the Rings, when, um, when Frodo's like, I'm, I'm horrible at, this, at remembering, but when he's like um, down about, about the journey and Samwise is with him and he says something to the effect of like, um, don't you remember that all of the, um, all of the great stories, uh, the hero doesn't know what's going to happen. And so I remind myself of that Mm -hmm. all the time. That like, it's not a good story if you if you know what's going to happen.
0: Right. If Dorothy knew it was going to happen, I mean, that would have been boring.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So there's the so there's so 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 for you there's the um, there's the what's there's the basics of lawyer, chocolate factory, bean to bar, that sort of thing, and and the trajectory of that. I'm also curious in how it changed you.
0: Well, it changed me by, um, well, we'll just stay on Joseph Campbell since we were talking about him. He said that we're called to joyfully participate in the sorrows of the world. And I've been able to do, I was able to do that at Mercy Hospital. I was able to do, I am, I still am very involved in Lost and Found uh, Grief Center here. I I, uh, co-facilitate a, Teen group for teenagers whose parents or brothers and sisters have died I work with students in Africa um, and so the way it's changed me is it's opened me up to recognize um, how great it can be how great life can be to pursue that noble effort of joyfully participating in the sorrows of the world. Mm -hmm. That's the way it's changed me. The other way it's changed me is to realize that we say, one of the things we say at the factory is, it's not about the chocolate, it's about the chocolate. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, it's, this is, I mean, when we're feeding kids and taking them to Africa and, you know, profit sharing with farmers or, you know, that... Like this week, I was speaking at the... We have a middle school, summer school program Mm. at the factory. Summer Explorer program. That's not about chocolate. It's about those students. Yeah. Or if we're feeding the kids, it's about them getting a lunch in the Philippines that are otherwise starving. Yeah. Well, so... It's not... I mean, that's nothing about chocolate. But on the other hand, it's everything about chocolate. Yeah. Because if we don't make... If that bar... Like a few weeks ago, we won, some, we won three awards in London for three different products. And now, I, you know, when I started, there were three people doing it. Now there's 200 in the United States, probably another 150 around the world. And if we're still winning awards, that means I'm doing something right because I'm laser focused on the quality of the chocolate. Yeah. And so if we didn't make great tasting chocolate, we couldn't do the other things that I say are not about the chocolate. Right. So they all support each other. Yeah. And what, what I'm getting to, and to answer your question, is the way that it's changed me is to recognize that well for you it's not about it's not about the brand it's not about the show mm-hmm. it's not about the podcast it's not about your next video yeah it's not about that it's about your heart and your passion for making things and making things where you are and Mm -hmm. that that is a true passion it's not so you're going to get five million likes on your next video
1: yeah
0: that's not what it's for
1: yeah
0: it's to inspire people it's to cause change in people for the better but then again it is about the show yeah (laughs) you want that show to be perfect right you want the guests to be on you want them to be energetic you want to be enthusiastic you want people to watch you want people to laugh You want the production quality to be super high. Yeah. And you want people to talk about that. Yeah. Well, so that's what I'm saying. It's the same for anything. It's the same for auto parts. It's the same if you're going to make belt buckles. It's the same thing. And so what I'm saying is the way I've changed is I've realized in my older years in doing this work is that this is my true self. Thomas Merton says, you know, that, that we can discover our true selves what is that it's our soul it's who god created us to be but that person gets hidden often by the other person known as our ego yeah. and and so the my true self doesn't care if i make chocolate or if i make macrame yeah he doesn't care yeah he wants me to he wants to be seen my true self wants to be seen as a compassionate, kind, loving person, yeah, and my ego is like, don't do that. You need just <laughs> you need to step on your competitor, you know, more, 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 <laughs> more, exactly, more. Yeah. So that's what I've that's what I've learned, and I'm still, and again, I, I recognize my inability to accomplish that too. So I, I mean, I, 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 that's what I want more of. I want more of my true self.
1: Do you find that? Um, uh, I get. Well, I get interviewed or, or people talk to me a lot and, um, but talk to me as if I know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you ever find being like, uh, like, mm-hmm. yes, these are my thoughts. Also, I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> Yes,
0: oh. every day. I mean, I think about that all the time. And, um, I mean, I, I thought about it before coming here. Yeah. Because I don't, I thought, well, Jeff's probably going to ask me, like, the seven steps to, that I listed in my book, and I'm not going to be able to have them memorized, even though I wrote them, and I worried <laughs> about that. And and so, yeah, and I think about, you know, the things I've forgotten in how to make chocolate, and if somebody yeah. told me right now, okay, go hand temper chocolate, which I could easily do blindfolded, you know, 10 years ago, I can't do that now. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, then I'm a fraud, you know, because I'm a chocolate maker, but I can't even temper chocolate <laughs> on a marble slab. Well, you know... So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's, that is, that's, that's our wonderful, beautiful ego, you know, getting in the way. Yeah. Telling us, protecting us, you know. Yeah. And so I'm all about ego disillusion.
1: <laughs> I like that. Let's, uh, let's end on ego dissolution. Yeah. Thank you for joining me oh, on this yeah. inaugural podcast I'm, episode. I'm honored. Well, there you have it. How about that? John Askenosi. It's an incredible story with a lot of wisdom. If you'd like to learn more about Askenosi chocolate, go to Askenosi.com. All right, Make Something Where You Are's audio engineer is Colton Jackson. Also, podcast music provided by Darren King. This is Jeff Houghton in the Makes on the City, Springfield, Missouri, reminding you that you can make something where you are.